We will now have a prayer for illumination. Heavenly Father, let your words illuminate our thoughts. Let your love fill our hearts. Let your presence give us strength to do your will. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. If you want to follow along, it's in your Pew Bible on page 661. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light, and I create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Testament reading is 1 Thessalonians, the first 10 verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. The word of the Lord. Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, 
Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, we're back together again after 500 years. Actually, that isn't accurate. If you want to be a stickler for detail, it's after 488 years because Zwingli in Switzerland was very impressed with the writings of Martin Luther. And of course, we're observing the 31st of October uh, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. That's rather arbitrary. It actually began a little bit before that. And uh, some people would say it began 100 years before that with the work of John Huss in Bohemia. Zwingli was impressed by what Luther wrote. Calvin hadn't, hadn't even started yet. So if you trace your lineage here back to Calvin, and of course John Knox gets into the act too, Luther was still center stage, but then Zwingli appeared, and he corresponded with Luther, and it seemed that they didn't agree on certain things, especially Holy Communion, I'll say more about that later, and met trying to bring the two sides together in October of 1529 in Marburg, Germany. Luther and Zwingli differed on their meaning of Holy Communion. And when I used to ask my mother, who grew up evangelical and reformed, that's a German form of Presbyterianism, what's the difference between Grandma's church and our church? Because I was going to a Lutheran church. My father, who was German, said, and I'll admit, secret, I was baptized in the Reformed church. And my parents were married there. And after the baptism, my father said, this is enough. We're going to the Lutheran church. (laughs) And my mother said, well, that's fine, because my church didn't have a youth group. It was out in the country, farm country, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And uh, I know everybody in that youth group, the Lutheran church, so I'll feel right at home. But she always said, well, the, the difference is what we say about communion and what it means. Give me some details, I asked. She said, well, you have confirmation class, and we heard about the real presence and uh, about a a spiritual presence. Uh, I'll say a few words at the table, at the uh, communion service, continuing on that. But we've actually been together for quite a long time. In fact, in my late of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, we were together from the time the first settlers arrived because uh, many German settlers were Reformed, and many were Lutheran, and they all spoke the same language, and they got to talking, and they realized it costs a lot of money to build a church, and they said, well, we're not that different. Let's share a church building with typical German thrift. They did that, and thus was born the Union Church. 
And all through southeastern Pennsylvania, you had these. Some of them still exist. Most of them don't. But in many towns, you will find a St. John's Lutheran Church and a St. John's UCC. The Evangelical and Reform eventually merged into the UCC and kind of lost their identity. But whatever the case may be, we've been together all the time. Our differences were not essential church dividing. And now we can celebrate communion together with a good conscience because our national church bodies have recognized the communions of each other. We have Eucharistic hospitality, as it's called. And that's what brought me to Richmond because my Lutheran wife teaches at Union Presbyterian Seminary, thanks to that agreement they made back in the, I think, 1980s. And there just happened to be a church down the street vacant at the time. But there's another area of disagreement. I don't want to say disagreement. There's another area where we see things differently, and that has to do with what our gospel's talking about, the relation between church and state. We heard this story about the Pharisees posing a trick question to Luther. They figured, we're going to get him in trouble. Because if he says it's all right to pay taxes to the emperor, then he will be saying it's all right to handle graven images because the tribute money had Caesar's image graven right on it. And Jews, if they followed the Ten Commandments very strictly, weren't allowed to deal with graven images, let alone with the Romans and all of their pagan tomfoolery that they were involved in in their occupation of the Holy Lands. If he said, no, that's not right to pay tribute to Caesar. There's only one Lord, one God. Caesar makes himself a God. I would have gotten him in trouble with the Romans. It was a trick question. And so, in typical fashion, he answered both and neither nor. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, as most of us learn, and to God what is God's. And this has caused some problems between those of the Calvinist persuasion and those of the Lutheran persuasion through the ages. Luther had a very carefully worked out role for the state to play. He said the state is ordained by God and trusted with the power of the sword to curb the activities of evil people who weren't Christian or forgot they were Christian. The state has the power of the sword. The church proclaims the gospel. And actually, the state is acting on behalf of God. The church has the self-restraining use of the law. And... Luther was a pessimist as regards how people will behave, even in a Christian state. Because Luther felt that a baptismal certificate was no guarantee that the person who was a believing adult Christian would behave like one. And so you needed the state to keep things in order. However, for matters spiritual, you had the church. 
This is known as the two kingdoms theory. The kingdom on the left, the state, the kingdom on the right, the church. And typically in Lutheran areas, and remember Germany wasn't the United Nation until 1870, that's what prevailed. The state had its function, the church had its function. Not so in Calvin's Geneva. He ran the place. I think I'm right. Bobby will correct me if I'm not. But typically in Calvinism, you have Christ transforming culture. In Lutheranism, you've got this the state and the church intention. But it all seemed to work out all right. There's a role for the state and a role for the church until you got to 1933. And then suddenly you got a godless state, a state that had no use for the church, indeed that later persecuted the church. And many people were enthused at first in the church. Oh, isn't this wonderful? The new state we have, the new government, this new national socialist government, it's bringing Germany back to its former glory. It's helping us overcome the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty, the end of World War I. And terrible things started to happen. I don't even have to go into detail. I think every person here knows what I'm talking about. There were some who stood up. Martin Niemöller, Friedrich von Bodelschwing, Hans Lilje, Helmut Thielicke, Karl Barth, who was reformed. Well, what happened to him? He had a job teaching a professorship in Heidelberg. They just kicked him out and said, go back to Switzerland where you belong. But those other people, except for Helmut Thielicke, ended up in prison. And it's the famous quote attributed to Niemöller, who was in a concentration camp. Well, they came first for the Jews. I'm not a Jew, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for the, uh, the national, uh, the, the, the social democrats. That was an important political party opposed to the Nazis. I'm not a social democrat, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for foreigners. Well, I'm not foreign. I'm German, so I didn't say anything. And so it went. And finally said, and then they came for me, and there was nobody to speak up for me. The most famous person who spoke out was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a promising young professor of theology who started an alternative seminary. Yes, the Nazis kind of tolerated this, the, 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 the church. They said, we'll, we'll even appoint a Reichsbishop. And it was just puppeting what they wanted the church to say. And they started something called the Confessing Church. Bonhoeffer was a leading figure in it. And eventually, because of his writings and being involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, and some will say that was his downfall, he shouldn't have done that. Just like Luther said of Zwingli, he shouldn't have gone to war, which he did, and died in that war. Bonhoeffer should not have uh, gotten mixed up in this plot to assassinate Hitler. But that's not for me to say. But in any case, this is our problem as Lutherans. 
two kingdoms. And we're right back to Matthew 22. Whom do we serve, Caesar or Christ? The title of the sermon, Our Only Comfort in Life and Death, gives us the answer. We serve Christ. And we would hope that we have the good fortune to live in a country where there's freedom of religion, such as we have in these United States, shortest by the First Amendment. But there's trouble. There was trouble all around. And we Lutherans have never quite come to terms with how to solve this dilemma, church and state. There is a solution to the problem. It's in Acts 5.29. But I think Bobby will now get us out of the mess I've got us into. We Presbyterians, we have all the answers. Here it comes. (laughs) In like six minutes. Here we go. I am grateful on this day that we have a a combined service of worship that this happens to be the lectionary passage for us uh, to consider. It is so appropriate for us Lutherans and Presbyterians. And uh, there's a lot that can be said. But I am grateful that both of our traditions, uh, rooted in folks like Luther and Calvin, would say, well, just keep going back to the scriptures and let the Holy Spirit lead you into where you might go. Because if we attend closely to this particular scripture, I think Jesus actually does have the essential insight on how to, to think about this. But, but it's just like Jesus, right? He doesn't come right out and just say, well, here's the answer to the tax question, the church-state thing, boom. He loves to ask a question to, to draw the people into the discernment process. Who, whose image is on the coin? What's the inscription you heard? No, Caesar. That's right. The, the, you heard John say Caesar's image was on the coin. In fact, the inscription would read underneath Tiberius Caesar, august son of the divine Augustus and high priest. When these coins were given and received, when they, when they go around the empire, they'd be a reminder of, of who's in charge and who has such great worthiness, this son of the divine. Anywhere his image was, you knew it was his dominion, his kingdom. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Famous. And, and you race too quickly past that. You say, okay, easy enough. Jesus just pointed to the coin with Caesar's image on it. He must mean pay the tax to Caesar and, and God to God. State over here. God over here. What exactly is God's, by the way? Now, Jesus knew what he was doing here. Good Jewish followers would, would know their scripture and, and, and a number upon hearing that would go right to Psalm 24, verse 1. It is one that the Reformed tradition in particular has underscored as, as, as foundational in, in naming uh, truth. And it reads, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. What is God's? Well, it's all God's. Or or as the Dutch Calvinist Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Well, now that might start to change how we approach land and state 
and water and, and life. And, and, and we might even think of the Barman Declaration of 1933 as stating one of the bold implications that everything is actually God's. The, the Barman Declaration, you might know, was penned for the most part by Karl Barth, this Reformed theologian, but very much in concert with Lutheran pastors as they saw what was going on with Nazi Germany. And the Barman Declaration declared unequivocally, Jesus Christ is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and death. We reject the false doctrine as though there were other areas of our life in which we would not belong to Jesus Christ, as if the state could say something outside of. In essence, it is this confession that is in the Presbyterian Church's book of confessions that confronts the state with this truth that all is God's and God is the highest authority, always the ever-present authority to which the church answers. Bonhoeffer's life and death speak to some of the implications of naming that clearly in certain seasons and certain ways. But and notice how the confession it not only underscores how really all belongs to God, but the very particularly, we belong to God. This is actually a point Jesus is drawing out beautifully in this scripture in Matthew 22. Do you recall Jesus asked whose image is on the coin? Image is a very purposeful word. Jesus is alluding to Genesis 1, reminding his hearers that you know what the Lord, who is God of all, also has God's image on something. Like Caesar, God has an image on something so as to make perfectly clear where God's dominion is and God's kingdom is unfolding. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Give to God what is God's. What is God? What, what bears God's image? Humans. We are entirely 100% God's. In fact, that is uh, the word of great comfort and hope named in the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is this catechism, this teaching tool published in 1563 that was adopted by Lutherans and Calvinists in a time, quite frankly, where, where the groups were bitterly, even violently at odds. But around this confession, they were both able to say yes. In the first question of the confession, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Our only comfort in life and death is that we belong 100% to God and nothing can separate us from God's ever-present, ever-gracious love. But as Matthew 22 is pointing out, as comforting and beautiful as those words are, also, what a challenge. For we belong, body and soul, to Jesus. Not, well, Jesus has my soul, but I can... Do whatever I want with my body. Jesus has the hour on Sunday, and I, you know, I figured out do what I want with my time and, and my money. 
Jesus has my prayers. I'll figure out how to best gauge with politics or not as I want. I mean, Jesus has the spiritual stuff of the soul, and the the state takes care of the physical realities. Jesus has me at the communion table, and and I know forgiveness and grace myself and with one another. Uh, Doesn't have any bearing on how I treat or interact with my spouse, my coworker, my political adversary. Jesus has my voice in the hymns, but not how I speak or communicate in email or work. The image of this Jesus is impressed in us and on us and through us. We belong heart, mind, body, and soul to Jesus. Give to God what is God's. To be sure, Jesus doesn't spell out precisely how we are to give unto the one who has given us all and what that looks like for us as, as, as citizens and as individuals and church members. And I think that's because, you know what, Jesus did not come right out and just say, give everything to God. Even in our passage, he he starts with a question. He leads with some insights. He draws us into the work of discernment. And so too, Jesus this day entrusts us to continue this kind of active, prayerful, discerning process, trusting the Spirit at work within We're to work out what it means in our age, in our time, in our lives, public, private, church, state, what it means that Jesus is Lord of all. And though Jesus does not answer right there the practical question that faces each of us, Jesus most definitely gives the starting point for thinking through how we step forward as a church, as a people, into decisions, into dilemmas. And it's this. Given that Jesus is Lord over all the earth and me. Given that I am a citizen of heaven before even I am a citizen or member of anything else. Given that my first loyalty is to the one who has given all to me. Given that I belong so graciously and lovingly body and soul to Jesus. Here's how I think about this money and why it is stewarded in this way. Here's how I think about immigration and why I vote or advocate this way or that. Here is why I speak and email and communicate in this kind of way. Because I know I I bear the image of Jesus. I belong to him. Here's how I approach this issue and this vote in the church. Because I'm seeking to act in a way that brings forth the image of the kingdom of God. With the spirit at work in me. Here's how the family's thinking about this medical decision. This school decision. About the food we eat. The water we consume. The transportation we use because we belong to Jesus it is his image being brought forth through us and as Calvin observed there is nothing holier or better or safer than to content ourselves with the authority of Christ alone My prayer is that as we continue to give to God what is God's in all aspects of life and church and city and state, my prayer is that we would find the Holy Spirit through us making it clearer and clearer how beautiful God is. Maybe even to the point when when, when we see one another and people see us, they see not only the image of Jesus pouring forth, but they can even read the little inscription of the coin that names our most fundamental truth, Daughter of the God Most High. Son of the God Most High. Amen.